Uh, This morning we pick up the story of Ruth in chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. And so she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who are you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and that your word written so long ago addresses us now and speaks to us of you and of how we live before you. And we pray this morning, Father, you might take from us all distractions and help us to hear your voice, that understanding your word, we might live in the light of it to your glory and that of your son who you gave for us. Amen. Well, as the husband of one wife and the father of four daughters, I've become rather familiar with rom-coms over the years. Um, In one of their favourites, and some of you might recognise it immediately, a woman is being driven by her grandson in search of an old flame she hasn't seen for almost 50 years. As they approach one clearly very luxurious estate where it's possible the man now lives, her grandson says... You can go from a man who worked the fields to one who owns the fields and you get to skip the messy bits. But she quietly responds, life is the messy bits. The very human 
everyday decisions, human reactions, uncertainty, taking risks and making mistakes, the hard work of growing and maintaining relationships, unexpected disappointments, changes of direction, health crises, wonderfully joy-filled surprises. Life is full of messy bits. They give a texture to our lives. This chapter of the book of Ruth is full of messy bits. A plan full of risks, the uncertainty of ordinary human interactions, sustained ambiguity with the very real possibility of misunderstanding, astonishing surprises, unexpected complications. Yet in all of these, an ancient purpose of God is unfolding that actually the participants in this drama will never see played out to the end. Naomi will never know where all of this is heading. Boaz or Ruth would never know that their great-grandson would be king in Israel and the Old Testament anticipation of an even greater king who would wear a crown of thorns to save us. We know where all this is going. And because we do, we can see God's plan advancing, but in the midst of it, who would guess? By the time we arrive at Ruth, chapter 3, we've already seen the hand of God furthering the, his purpose through large-scale events over which none of the players had any control. The famine in the house of bread. One little family's journey to the land of Moab, where there was bread, but the family would be devastated by one tragedy after another. And then the famine in Israel was over. Naomi knew that the Lord was behind it all, but as she told the women of the town upon her return to Bethlehem, he has brought me back empty. Except she had Ruth with her, and the barley harvest had begun. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2, God's hand was seen in unplanned and unexpected events. Ruth just so happened to glean in the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Boaz just so happened to be one of the kinsmen redeemers of Elimelech, the dead husband of Naomi. When he notices Ruth, he unexpectedly goes way beyond the strict requirements of the law. He told his reapers to deliberately leave sheaves of barley for her to pick up, and he let her share his meal. So when Ruth returns to Naomi at the end of the day, she's loaded down with food. Now the empty Naomi has more than enough to eat. But chapter 3 takes things up a further notch. For here there is deliberate action with a determined agenda and a desired outcome. These are most certainly not unplanned and unexpected events. These are very human decisions. They are risky decisions. And though an outcome is desired, it is by no means certain. So many of the details could go wrong. Naomi takes the initiative, then Ruth does, then Boaz does, but at each point, none of them knows how this will work out. Put what you know about the end of the story out of your mind for a minute and imagine what it was like in the midst of this. Observe how the whole scene is, is laced with ambiguities and think about how God could possibly be involved in all of this. For that is what you and I need to see. 
here in this extraordinary chapter of this fascinating story. What do we learn about the way God so often works in his world to accomplish his purpose? The generosity of Boaz in chapter 2 had continued right through the harvest, and both Naomi and Ruth were acutely aware that this wouldn't go on forever. This is a temporary provision. The problem Naomi had foreseen for her daughters-in-law in chapter 1 is still a problem as this chapter begins. Naomi and Ruth have an uncertain future and no lasting security. But if we look carefully, we can see that some things are different in chapter 3. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, Naomi had seen the solution to the problem lies entirely in the hands of God. The Lord grant that you might find rest, each of you in the house of her husband, she had said. Now in chapter 3 and verse 1, Naomi sees at last that God will do this not through a flash of lightning in the sky, but through her. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you. You see, Naomi's now a changed woman, changed from the broken, depressed, embittered woman of chapter one. The events of chapter two have changed her. So she now takes the initiative. She has energy and determination and she's come up with a plan. And her plan involves Boaz. Boaz, the man of worth or mighty man of strength, the close relative the kinsman redeemer. Now, why do you think didn't Naomi simply suggest to Ruth that she speak to Boaz next time she was in the field and sound him out about a potential marriage? Uh, he'd been very kind to her before. He was clearly interested. Just lay it out before him. Challenge him to act in the way that the law provides. He's a redeemer. Surely he, it could all be settled quickly and out in the open. Uh, but it's not quite as easy as that. Boaz was indeed a redeemer for Elimelech. But as outlined in Leviticus 25, the practice of redemption relates first and foremost to land. The redeemer might act for a dead relative to ensure that his land is not lost to those outside the family, Boaz could redeem the land that once belonged to Elimelech and now belongs to his widow because he's a close relative. Then the land would not be lost from the family nor from the tribe of Judah. But how would that resolve Ruth's situation? No, Naomi understands that if Ruth is to find rest, her situation needs to be included in the deal. The practice of land redemption in Leviticus 25, needs to be connected to the practice of per uh, perpetuating a brother's name by marrying his widow, a practice outlined in Deuteronomy 25. And Naomi's bold plan will do that. Not just the land, but the young widow as well. That's what would be clear when the encounter on the threshing floor was over. Now, we don't know what went through Ruth's mind when she first heard Naomi's plan. After all, Naomi might be confident, but she's not the one bearing the risk. Ruth was. Ruth had been at risk, you might remember, when she went to the fields in the light of the day. Boaz had intervened to prevent his workers from touching her. But now she was going to the threshing floor at night. 
If she'd been in danger in broad daylight, surely this was far worse. And even if no one touched her, perhaps just as bad was the risk to her reputation. Washed, perfumed, wrapped in a cloak, creeping around in the dark, lying down at the feet of a man to whom she was not married, more like one of those prostitutes who tended to hang around places where there are plenty of tired young men. A woman of disrepute. That's what they might say of her after this. But Ruth does not appear concerned. She's not shocked. She doesn't weigh the proposal and look at the negatives as well as the positives. Ruth says nothing about the plan except, all that you say, I will do. But what would this man do when he wakes up and finds her there in the dark alone? Well, there's really only two possibilities, aren't there? He could expose her to ridicule, send her home in disgrace. It was entirely inappropriate for her to be there, really. A scandal. And the suggestion she made is ludicrous. She's a Moabite, after all. She's acting like an immoral woman. Let her be treated like an immoral woman. Or else... Uh, Boaz could just take advantage of the situation. After all, no one saw her come. She seems willing enough. The offer seems ambiguous enough. Why not? But in the end, Boaz takes neither of those options. Ruth initially follows Naomi's plan to the letter. She prepares thoroughly. She heads to the thrashing floor. She remains hidden until the right moment when he's had enough to eat and drink when he's merry and tired and has fallen asleep behind the grain pile. And then the really risky bit, lying down and uncovering his feet. Some readers of this story have suggested that uncovered his feet is a euphemism and that Ruth was in fact offering herself to Boaz sexually. I don't think so. Throughout this story from beginning to end, and here in this chapter especially, both Ruth and Boaz are presented as people of worth, people of character. They both are concerned to do what's right, what the law requires. Neither of them sinned that night, but it was all so very risky and so easily misunderstood. I wonder whether you noticed that Ruth, in fact, changed the plan that Naomi had given her. I mean, the plan had been lie down, uncover his feet and wait for him to make the next move. But Ruth does not wait. She takes the initiative. I am Ruth, your servant, she says in verse 9. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. When Boaz had first met Ruth, back in chapter 2, verse 12, he'd praised her for seeking refuge under the wings of the Lord. Now Ruth pushes him to be the agent by which that happens, to translate his words into action. What he asked the Lord to do is what he should do. Perhaps that is the way the Lord will do it. So Boaz does not reject her. He doesn't take advantage of her. He's taken back by the request. It's surprising to him that she should choose him rather than one of the young men, but he sees that as an act of covenant faithfulness. The kind of covenant faithfulness that characterises the God she now worships. 
Naomi's plan, you see, had arisen out of care and compassion for Ruth. As executed by Ruth, it was a demonstration of covenant faithfulness. Naomi had planned a home rest for Ruth. Ruth was planning an heir for Naomi. So Boaz praises her, identifies her again as a worthy woman, a woman of strength, and he acts to protect her reputation. While it's still dark, he sends her home, once again laden with food. And most important of all, he promises in the strongest terms to do what she has asked. I will do for you all that you ask. As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. He will go beyond being a redeemer of Elimelech's land. He will redeem Ruth as well. But before another moment passes, he must reveal a complication. At every point in this story so far, the next step has been clouded by a complication. Did you notice? Early on, it had been the simple fact that Ruth was a Moabite and so stood outside the promises and protection offered to Jewish widows. Now the complication's different. There is a redeemer nearer than I. And as yet another indication that Boaz is acting with the utmost integrity, he will not jump the queue. Boaz is not the primary redeemer just as Ruth is not the primary widow in this story. But he will go beyond the expectations of the law if the nearer redeemer is not willing. Well, it's, it's dark when Ruth get, arrives back at Naomi's house. That's why I think Naomi strangely asks, who are you? But once all that has gone on that day is recounted to her, Naomi's newfound confidence is on display once again. Wait, my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today, you think? In the midst of all that was going on in Ruth 3, there is a certain edgy uncertainty, isn't there? And even when it seemed to have all worked out extraordinarily well, there's another complication, another hurdle. And we're left asking whether Boaz's restlessness mentioned in the last verse will result in the rest Naomi sought for Ruth in the first verse. Will it be Boaz who returns to her or someone she doesn't know? Will Boaz be allowed to act as God's way of blessing Ruth or will someone else claim that right? So much seems to hang on very human factors. The negotiating skill of Boaz, the decision of the other relative. It's all so ordinary there's no voice from the sky, no angel, no miraculous sign, just a very human plan laden with all the riskiness of human decision. And it is easy to lose sight of the fact that at every point, in every action and every decision, God is involved, carefully unfolding the details of his plan. Friends, insurance companies sometimes speak of an act of God, something that cannot be explained as the result of human action. A freak storm, an earthquake, a drought, a flood. Ordinary things can be explained as the result of human action and human beings are culpable, 
It's only the spectacular, the out of the ordinary that remains unexplainable. And we can sometimes think and speak just like insurance companies. There is ordinary life. We make that happen. We're responsible there. And then there's the out of the ordinary. That's where God comes in. But is God really only involved when nobody else is? Is it possible that we've limited God to the extraordinary? Has God only healed when there is no other explanation? Has God only led us when there is a spectacular sign? Has God only spoken when the lightning strikes and there's a voice from heaven? In contrast to insurance companies, theologians sometimes speak of concursus or concurrence. God at work in and through the creatures he has made, not overriding their agency, allowing them freedom, creativity and even risk-taking, but still accomplishing in and through them what he has always intended. Human action and God's action in one and the same activity. And that's what happens in the very human activity of sharing the gospel, isn't it? In the votes of a population in an election, in the application of medical knowledge to prescribe that medicine or perform that procedure. God is certainly able to intervene in a miraculous way, and he sometimes does. But at other times, he uses very human, very weak, very fallible people like you and me. The half-baked plans we come up with, the risks we take, the uncertainty we live with to advance his wonderful purpose. God used the advice of Naomi the covenant faithfulness of Ruth, the nervous integrity of Boaz to further his purposes in the dark days of the judges. He didn't need to step in to make things happen. He was already in. 2,000 years ago, God used 12 very ordinary, unspectacular men to take the most precious message anyone could ever hear, first to the Jewish nation, and then to the ends of the earth. And that message was all about the one whose earthly life is the end point of this story. The descendant of Ruth the Moabite. The descendant of Boaz the kinsman redeemer. What do you and I need to know about God? And how he so often works in his world? Through the creatures he has placed in his world through weak, confused, uncertain people like you and me, through the messy bits, God is at work. Don't fall into the trap of limiting God to the extraordinary. He is in total control of the usual as well as the unusual. And don't devalue what some people consider just the ordinary. Just hearing the Bible read, just obeying, just praying... God's plan continues to unfold in human activity, which in the last analysis can be seen to be the activity of God. Remember the first lesson of the book of Ruth? God is at work even when it's not obvious, even when we can't see clearly. The second lesson of the book of Ruth? 
God's work advances at every level, not by law, but by grace. And the third, the God who works miracles can just as easily do his work through human hands. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word and for what it shows us about how you work in the world. And we pray that our confidence might be in you, our trust in you, and that boldly we might do what you give us to do at this moment in time, knowing that all things are in your hand. Help us to be faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus. For this we ask in his name. Amen.